that first, that last song we sang, the first where it shows the credits of it. Um, John Newton was the man who wrote Amazing Grace. So this would have been one of his, probably written when he was pastoring in Olney, uh, O-L-N-E-Y, in England, maybe alongside probably at that time, um, the uh, William Cooper, uh, it's spelled Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, but it would be pronounced Cooper, and, and uh, they wrote many hymns together. Newton himself was a hymn writer who loved the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And uh, as a, uh, a man who God allowed to, previous to his conversion, really run the gamut of sinfulness and debauchery, and, uh, and yet God's grace rescued him. That's where amazing grace comes from, and, uh, but also that song. Sometimes we don't know we're singing old hymns, but you didn't, some of you didn't even know that. You might even think, I wish we could sing some old hymns around here, some of the good old hymns. Well, that hymn is over 200 years old, and I wonder if when he wrote it, he knew that people would be singing it in places like Grand Junction, Colorado, over 200 years later, right? It's pretty amazing, but good stuff, and connects to what we're about to, about what we're about to study here in Romans chapter 4. I don't know if there's anybody just joining us this morning, but that's what we're doing, walking through Paul's letter to the Roman church. And we're in chapter 4 now, and this week, Lord willing, we'll be through verse 12. But remember what he's doing before I read our verses. In chapter 4, Paul is proving and demonstrating from the Bible. Um... In chapter 4, it's about Abraham, specifically Genesis chapter 15. But he'll also mention in verses 7 and 8, David's writings as well, Psalm 32, that the only way to be right with God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the key phrase, remember, is apart from works. It's the key phrase in the most controversial phrase. That you're justified apart from anything you do, entirely based only on what Jesus has done. And you're trusting in him. Or as he put it in chapter 3, verse 28, right? For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And in chapter 4, he's saying... This is exactly what the Old Testament teaches, and this is exactly how all these Old Testament characters you know and respect were justified as well. No one has ever been justified by the works of the law or good deeds or their own righteousness. It's always been by faith alone. That's what he's doing here. Let's begin reading verse 4. We'll just read through verse 12. We'll pray and ask God's blessing on it, and then we'll jump in. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Well, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now let's just pray, uh, pause and ask God's blessing on this passage. Father, we now are going to come to this time in our worship that we are going to um, give attention now to reading your word and teaching and exhortation and proclamation. And it has fallen to me to do that this morning and I'm pleading with you that your spirit would help me and gift me for not my sake only, but for the sake of everyone that has come this morning. And I know the majority of the people in this room love your word and need to be encouraged in it, want to be blessed in it. And so I pray that that would happen for each one, that they would just have this sense of you speaking directly to their hearts. Um, because we love to hear you speak to us, God. So I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Now, one question that arises from Paul's teaching that people asked then and that people ask now, when Paul says something like, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, A question arises like this, since we are justified or declared righteous or made right with God by grace and faith alone without works, does that mean we can live any way we want? Does that mean that there's no such thing anymore as sin, that I can just do what I want? Does it mean that the law is just completely gone and God has no opinion of what I do and Essentially, I just get to make my own determinations. Of course, friends, we all know that is not true at all. That once we are saved, born again, that, that launches a life of living for God. It's like the verses we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 6. He said, Something effective. This list of people, make, make no mistake, if they live in these things, as if, if this is their lifestyle, and he named a lot of se- things like sexual immorality and, and homosexuality and other things, they live in this lifestyle, make no mistake and let no one deceive you, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But then he says, and such were some of you. And he mentions justification in that list, of course, but he also mentions the regeneration and the washing Like in other words, what he's saying is they've been made new now. 
And therefore, though they used to just live in that, that was the way they lived. Now there's been a change in their hearts. And they're now desiring to live for God. Now, they don't work that out completely. Romans 7 talks about that. We're still going to sin because we have sin within us. But the fact of the matter is, that's not the general pattern of our lives anymore. Okay? So we live for God. And what we talk about when we talk about living for God and pursuing holiness and trying not to sin and and wanting to live for God, it's under another heading, not justification. It's under the heading of what we would call sanctification. And interestingly enough, that word sanctification shows up for us in chapter 6 of Romans. It's the first time it'll show up, essentially. And In chapter 4, it's not talked about. Only justification is talked about in chapter 4. And that's important to catch. So chapter 4, he's talking about justification. How one is going to be made right with God. And the only way this is going to happen, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God's going to, to credit their faith as righteousness now. And they stand justified And it isn't until chapter 6 where he'll start saying, now, justified one, you begin pursuing now sanctification. Your works now do come into play. Chapter 4, no works for justification. Chapter 6, now we work. Springing out of our justification. That's very important. So if you look, as, just for a second, if you look at chapter 6 and verse 19, he starts to talk about something in Romans 6 about, no, we don't just live in sin because we're under grace. We, we're united to Christ in his, both his death and his resurrection. We're going to walk in the newness of life. And he says this, he's trying to break it down. Verse 19, he says, I am speaking in human terms. That's his way of saying, let me break this down for you. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Just as you once presented your members or the parts of your body as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to what? Sanctification. That word sanctification is a fancy word, but the underlying word just has reference to holiness. And what he's saying is this, before you were justified, the way you lived was like this, you would... You would present yourself to lawlessness and you just lived in lawlessness. And what does that always do? That always leads to more lawlessness. That's why there's addictions. That's what an addiction is, by the way. It is a habitual pattern of lawlessness in a particular area. You give in to something once and then again and then again and then again. And what does the scripture say is true about that? You keep doing that pattern and what does that lead? To more lawlessness. As a matter of fact, it kicks open the door to other forms of lawlessness. More and more and more lawlessness. I ministered in the jail for a couple years back in Rockford and what you found with most of these men that were in there was patterns of addiction started with something small giving in to some drugs, giving in to whatever it is, and then they keep going with it, keep going with it. It grows, it grows, it grows. Addiction, but that opens up the door even to more and more lawlessness because now they're in prison because in order to get more drugs, they had to commit crimes. And they end up in, in prison. It's a, 
I realize that's not the case for everybody that ends up in that position, but the simple fact of the matter is that's the pattern of sin. The more you give into it, the more it produces lawlessness in your life. Well, anyway, what Paul says here in chapter 6, verse 19, is that the more you give into righteousness and you set those patterns of life of doing what's right and saying no to sin and obeying, what does that lead to at the end of chapter 19? That leads to sanctification. When you talk about sanctification, it's really not complicated. It's, it's pursuing holiness by obedience. That's what it is. God teaches you what's right and wrong. You learn to obey God. It leads to sanctification. And that includes works. It includes your effort. It includes your will. It includes what you do. It's a very active thing. Now, my point in bringing all this out is that when we're in chapter 4, we're not dealing with sanctification here. We're dealing with justification, and that's not active. It's passive. You come to Christ with nothing but your sin, and you look in faith to Jesus, and you trust in him, and then he declares you righteous. See, that's passive. Then God declares you righteous, and then you get active with sanctification. But you have to separate these two. Martin Luther, we've talked about him before, but back in the 1500s in that Reformation time period, he was promoting justification by grace alone through faith alone, Christ alone. And the Catholic Church was saying this is not right, that your works tie into what you're doing. Uh, It's faith, but not faith alone. It's grace, but not grace alone. It's your efforts. But what they were doing essentially is mixing up these two things. They were mixing up justification and sanctification, and that was the problem. And they kept telling him, you can't tell people they're just saved by grace alone through faith alone because then they're going to live any way they want. And look at how much the New Testament talks about good works. It's always compelling us to good works. And he said this. I love this quote from him. This comes from his commentary on the letter to the Galatian church, which is talking about the same thing we're talking about here in Romans 4. He says this. We do not hear and now argue whether we ought to do good works or whether the law is any good or whether the law to be kept at all. We will discuss these questions some other time. We are now concerned with justification. Our opponents now, they refuse to make this distinction. All they can do is to bellow that good works ought to be done. Well, we know that. We know that good works ought to be done, but we will talk about that when the proper time comes. Now we are dealing with justification, and here good works should not be so much as mentioned. You see what he's doing? He's making this very clear. When you're dealing with justification, you don't even talk about our works, except to use the statement, apart from them, completely apart from what we do. It's all what Christ has done We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, apart from works. When you deal with sanctification, that's the other time he's talking about. Now, let's talk about the law and the use of the law in the believer's life and sanctification. Now, let's talk about good works that ought to be done in the life of a believer. But it isn't here, not in chapter 4. When you come to Christ for faith, you bring nothing but your sin and you trust in Jesus Christ. So, justification, friends is all of grace and all of faith and 
apart from works. Sanctification, no, that's not the case. There's grace, there's faith, but there's your effort in works as well. But it's so important to remember, friends, that as you pursue holiness, and you should, you have to settle into and rest in your justified status. Your justified status and your faith in Christ is what has brought you into right relationship with God. And what he wants you to do is rest in that right relationship now. And that justification that you receive, friends, it's once for all. Paul will talk about that in Romans 8. Romans 8 starts with no condemnation for justified people and ends with no separation for justified people. Like there's no possibility you get out of justification. That justifies status. But he wants you to rest in that status, meaning all your works you're doing are not trying to gain his love or gain his acceptance or earn your right standing before him. They're all because that's what you have, you see. It's so important or we'll be frantic Christians who have never felt like we've done enough. If you don't learn to rest in God's disposition of you, of love and grace because of his son, if you don't learn to rest in the fact that your faith is what credit to you is righteousness, if you don't learn to rest in that, you're gonna be a frantic Christian always feeling like I gotta do more, I gotta do better, I gotta get my act together, I gotta keep going, keep going, and I gotta do that because I either gotta get my right relationship with God or I gotta keep it. See, God accepts you, friends, just like John Newton said in that song, When he sees you, he sees the righteousness of his son. Think about that. And Jesus was not lacking in any righteousness. And by faith, all of his righteousness credited to you, counted to you now. Your standing before God is unquestioned at this point. And isn't that liberating? There's freedom in that. There's freedom to then love others and to serve out of a disposition of love for God and other people. It's liberating to understand these things, friends. Now, look at verses 9 through 12 for just a few minutes and then I'm going to jump back into verses 6 through 8 and land on those. I just want to spend a few minutes in 9 through 12 because they'll kind of tie in when we jump into verse 13 next week. So we'll mention them again probably, but I just want to summarize them. Now, he's talking about the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of, uh, well, look at verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. There's a blessing in that, okay? Now, skip forward to verse 9. Is this blessing of what we're talking about in justification? Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Remember, circumcised would be Jews, uncircumcised, non-Jews. Okay? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. That means what he's saying there is back in Genesis chapter 12, God called out Abram and made a covenant with him and promised to bless him. Genesis 15 now is when uh, he brings out Abraham, remember, says, look at the stars, count them if you're able, so shall your descendants be. Abraham believed God, it was credited to him unto righteousness. Now, did that happen, what Paul's asking, and this is important, did it happen before or after he was circumcised? After, or before, right? Because it wasn't until Genesis 17 
that God instituted circumcision. That was on purpose. That wasn't an accident. God did that purposely with Abraham. It's ordered that way in the book of Genesis on purpose so that no one would ever mess this up. Abraham was a justified man only by faith alone. Apart from circumcision, which the Jews thought, remember they went about teaching. If you've ever read through the book of Acts, they'd say, you got to believe and be circumcised. And you have people now that say, you got to believe and be baptized. You got to believe and do this. And Paul is saying, this man, Abraham, whom you're looking to is the father of your nation and of your faith was justified before there was even circumcision there. And instituted till two chapters later. And that's why he says in verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. You see how clear that is in verse 11? The circumcision was given for what reason? As a seal, a sign of the righteousness he already had. Now to make this a parallel with us, it's the same thing with our baptism. You believe in Jesus and you're justified and you're right with God. And then you're baptized as this covenant sign of the righteousness you have and the right relationship that you have with God through faith in his son, you see. It didn't add to the righteousness. You already possess that. Your faith was credited to you as righteousness. And now you hear you have this visible demonstration of that, right? And the purpose, verse 11, second half of that, the reason God did it this way, remember, was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be crowned to them as well, to you and me. We can know, based on what happened with Abraham, that when we believe in Jesus, God will credit our faith as righteousness as well so that no one ever, what he's saying is, so that no one ever, not then or now, would ever be justified any other way. That we all have to be justified in the same way by faith and to make him, listen, verse 12, the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, he's the father of true Jews, not just ones who are physical descendants of his or bear that mark of circumcision, but those who are walking in the footsteps of faith. That is those who are trusting in the Lord for their righteousness and not trying to achieve their own. He's, Abraham is their father and he's our father as Gentiles, even though none, some of us have, probably have no Jewish blood in us whatsoever. And we Share Father Abraham. You ever sang that in kids' church? I think we've, I've sang it for you before. Rather, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Well, I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Right foot, left foot. It's a hokey pokey song <laughs> for kids that help you remember this. Which... By the way, now, let me, let me say this, and we'll talk more about it in maybe in weeks to come. But we do believe in our view of scriptures that there is a distinction between ethnic Israel and 
the New Testament church. And yet we need to be careful because there is clearly continuity here. That we do as Gentiles experience the blessings promised to our father Abraham when we trust in Jesus Christ. And that's why I love that statement from the Old Testament. The God of our father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Same God for us. There's no difference in that. And we're all children of Abraham now and the blessings that flow from that that have their source friends all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when God called out Abram and put his blessings on them. That means the Old Testament is for us as well as the new, right? And friends, this is why when you, we can take the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone in the world, no matter where they live, and we can share it with confidence that if they will believe in Jesus, they too can be right with God. We don't have any different gospel for a Jew than we do for a Gentile, than we do for some other nation, for an American, any other country, any other tribe, tongue, nationality. We have one message about one God and one way to be right with that God through faith in Jesus Christ. It simplifies gospel missions. Just learn the language and share the gospel. I love the... Uh, David Hassefluke was a, is still a missionary, been a missionary many, many years over in Albania. He's actually got over there right from the beginning when it was opened up, and um, I've watched a documentary with him, and, and he was being interviewed at the end talking about missions, and he said, it's really simple. You meet people, and you tell them about Jesus. If he would write a book on missions, that's what the book would be. One line. Meet people and tell them about Jesus because there's only one way they can be right with God. It's the same thing he's proposing here for anyone on the planet. That learns me, leads me now to back to verse five, friends. And know that, uh, back in chapter four, verse five, when, when you're evangelizing, let me, let me make this point first and then I'm, I'm gonna lead into where I see this. It doesn't matter how messed up their life is to that point. What you don't want to do ever when you're trying to evangelize is discuss how somebody needs to straighten up their life to be right with God. What you want to do is compel them to believe in Jesus so that they can be justified from their sins. Cleaning up their life will come later. Do you understand what I mean by that? You're trying to share Christ with somebody. What does Luther say? Good works should not even so much as be mentioned. What do they need to do in that moment? Nothing but believe in Jesus. Notice verse 5. To the one who does not work. I love this verse. To the one who does not work but believes or trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Friends, according to that verse, what kind of person does God declare righteous? 
if you were to summarize it from this one word, ungodly. The kind of person God justifies would be described like this. That's an ungodly person. And God declares them righteous apart from their works. Only by faith. It's to the one who does not work. He doesn't try to clean himself up to make himself acceptable to God. How futile that would be anyway. But he comes to God with all his mess, with all his sin, and with no excuses, knowing and trusting in the one he'd heard about. This one justifies, this God justifies ungodly people. Now, I don't know about you, but that's gospel news to me. That's good news to me. This is a God who justifies sinners now. All of a sudden now, we have a gospel for sinners who can come to Jesus Christ and be saved. Whether you know this or not, you all bought me uh, a three-volume set of the complete works of John Bunyan, the 17th century Puritan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. It was for my 10-year anniversary. It took a while to come in. They were on back order. They came in, dove into some of those, and I read his book within that volume on justification on the very thing we're talking about right here. And he had a statement he kept repeating over and over again because he needs to get this across. Is that men must be justified from the curse or the condemnation that comes from sin. We must be justified from the curse while sinners in themselves, you see. While you're still a sinner, (laughs) unwashed, Still all in all your wicked ways and works, you come to Jesus in that condition, trust in him, and then he justifies that person. And that's the only way. You ever watched a Billy Graham crusade in the old day? I haven't watched one in years. I don't know what they're still doing. I know Billy Graham's with the Lord, but at the end of each one, he put out the gospel and then he gave the invitation and they sang the same song every single time. Right? Put this up on here, Amber. We, I think I have it just this once. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am. I'm not going to change this. I can't change me. I'm coming to you, Jesus, just as I am with all my sin and my wickedness and my unrighteousness and without one plea. Like, I'm not going to try to excuse anything. This is what you say about me is true. I'm a sinner to the core of my being. But I come to you, Jesus. Rescue me now from my sins. I'm trusting in the one who justifies the ungodly. And you know what happens, according to Romans 4, when you do that, that faith is credited as righteousness to you. And from that moment on forever, you stand in right relationship to God. Or how about this next one from my favorite hymn, or one of them, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, foul with my sin. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the idea. I need you, Jesus. I'm trusting in you. And it's that kind of faith. It brings the righteousness we're craving. 
And then in verses 6 to 8, just to wrap up this section, are so wonderful. Friends, if, you, if you're distracted, get undistracted. And I mean, get right now into these verses and listen to this. Because if, if the Spirit will take it and apply it into your heart, if it's true of you, you're going to leave happy. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Now, that's the way we've been discussing this justification, right? The crediting of righteousness apart from works. But then he goes into the negative side of this, the other angle of it, or the flip side of the same coin. And he quotes from David here out of the Psalms. And listen to what he says. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are are covered. Your lawless deeds erased. Like they never happened. Your sins covered. Meaning, God isn't seeing them. In verse 8, blessed is the man or woman or child against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That word count is that word we looked at just a couple weeks ago, right? It's throughout this whole passage, but it's usually in relationship to this. Like, you trust in Jesus, what's counted to you is righteousness. But again, this is the flip side of the same coin, right? Here he's saying, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his what? His sin. Blessed is that man against whom the Lord will never count his sin. As a matter of fact, let me just get a little more technical here because you got to see it to really appreciate it. Let me explain it. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That will not, listen to me, in the underlying Greek of the sentence is a double negative. Ume is the double negative. And when that shows up, it is a, in, in English, when we use a double negative, it means, it, it really means that we cancel it out. So if I say, I will not, not go to work tomorrow, that's a double negative, right? And some kid may say that, or I will not, not go to school tomorrow. And they think they're saying, no, I'm not going to go to school tomorrow. But really what they're saying is they're going to go to school tomorrow and you catch them in the double negative, right? But in the Greek, a double negative is used, doesn't cancel it out, it emphasizes the impossibility of something happening. So you would read it something like this. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will never ever, under any circumstance, any condition, for any reason whatsoever, count his or her sin against them. It just won't happen. You'll never stand in condemning judgment for your sin. You see, this is why Paul can say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like it's not in the realm of possibility because our sins, and remember why, friends, our sins have been atoned for through the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 3. At the cross, your sins were dealt with 2,000 years ago. 
I want you to think now about the sin that you struggle with in your life. The besetting sin. Or maybe the sin in the past that you committed that bothers you, keeps you up sometimes at night. The sin you wish would have never happened. Friends, hear this good news. In the mind of God, in the plan of God for you because of Jesus Christ, it did never happen. It's already been atoned for by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10, 17, from God being quoted from Jeremiah, talking about the new covenant in Christ, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. You ever heard of divine amnesia? Or Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Isn't that good news? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And listen to this, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. They're taken off of you, and they're put on Christ. And this is why we sing, of course, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. I don't know what sins you're dealing with, friends, and you do need to deal with them in your daily life. We'll get to that. Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8. Oh, it'll talk about how we deal with the presence of sin in our lives. But friends, know this. When it comes judicially, when it comes to the courtroom of God, they've already been dealt with at the cross. You stand now by faith as a righteous person, which means you have no sin and all the righteousness you need before God. And that's the only posture, that's the only position from which you can begin dealing with sin in your life. And you notice what he says, David made a big deal about this, and David was a sinful man, was he not? David was a sinful man. And it comes out all the way through his Psalms, like he knew his sin. There was never any issue about his sin to him. He knew it. He made statements at times like, my sins, my iniquities are more than the hairs of my head. I can't count them. They're like a heavyweight. They're too heavy for me. And yet he had experienced God's justifying grace simply by faith. And he said the results of that, man, that is blessedness. There is a happiness that comes to the one who grasps this. I love, and I'll close with this, the the point in The Pilgrim's Progress. That's a book we've recommended in the past. And I recognize it's old English, right? It's... um, written back in the 1600s by John Bunyan, who I talked about earlier. And it's an allegory about this man, Christian, who lived in the city of destruction. And he had a great big burden on his back, and the burden represents his sins and all his wrongdoings. And he gets a hold of a Bible, and he's learning about the problem that he's got with God and the judgment coming. So he he introduced this man, Evangelist, An evangelist points him in the direction of the cross. Do you remember the account when a Christian gets to the cross? 
John Bunyan records, I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burden Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. Remember, that's his sin. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, listen to this, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Listen to this. Then Christian was glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. When I read that portion of Pilgrim's Progress, I think of these words, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. All because that man has come to the cross of Jesus Christ and the burden of his sin rolls away. Are you the blessed man or woman? Do you know what it is to experience the happiness of the forgiveness of all your sins? Friends, look to Jesus Christ this morning, and that is what you will find. Let's pray. Father, your word is so good. It's good for our souls. It's good for our lives. From you comes the words of eternal life. We praise you for it. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for justification. Thank you for right standing apart from our works. Now, Lord, work in us to work out our salvation, our lives now, and to live for you. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen.